also get a set of notes for our series, Positive Holiness. And if you remember, bring these back with you next week because we're going to continue this series for several weeks. Uh, after, we'll, we'll, we'll do it next week, and then we will have a four-week hiatus because we'll be doing the newcomers orientation and new members classes for four Sundays during this hour starting two weeks from today. So that's one of the announcements I wanted to make. If you're new to the church, if you've never taken our newcomers orientation, then I encourage you to two weeks from today be in the classroom where I'll be leading that out this back door and across the hallway. And uh, for those four weeks, we'll go through a booklet of material together about our church and where we've come from and what our philosophy is and why we're structured the way we are. And uh, it's very informative. There's no pressure on you to make any decision with regard to the church. It's just to help you make an informed decision when you do. So if you're new, you've never taken that, I encourage you to do that. The new members class is for those who have joined our church since we had the last new members class. That goes on concurrent with the newcomers orientation. Uh, Pastor Larry leads that. And those of you that have joined uh, since the last time we had it will get a direct invitation. So that one's by invitation. The class I lead is open, uh, is an open class. Anybody who's new uh, not only is invited but encouraged to, to come to that. The other thing I wanted to announce was baptism that is uh, coming up two weeks from today at 5 o'clock. So because the date is hastening, if you've been putting off, uh, putting in your application for baptism, you need to do that like right away uh, today. That would be great. So get the one-page application at the information center desk, fill that out, turn it into them. And then they'll get it to me and we'll go from there. All right, uh, page three in our series, Positive Holiness. We just started this last week. And the title of the series, Positive Holiness, comes from what I explained last week. If you weren't here, the audio for that, as is the audio for all of our sermons and lessons, is on our website so you can listen to that. But the gist of it is this, that holiness is first what we do before it is what we don't do. That's what I mean by positive holiness. By positive holiness, uh, I don't mean good versus bad. I simply mean something that you actively do versus things you avoid. I mentioned last week that most of us think of holiness in terms of what you don't do. And we gave some of the reasons why we think that. We think that because, in fact, many of the commandments in Scripture are stated in the negative. Thou shalt not. There are prohibitions, lots of prohibitions. But Jesus told us that all of those thou shalt nots are all ways in order for us to achieve, to achieve these two positive commands. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the things we don't do are all because of what we're trying to do. So that's what I mean by positive holiness. Holiness is not just a list of rules for stuff to stay away from. And many of us have grown up in environments where if we were not taught that explicitly, that's what we caught. Holiness is a list of things to stay away from. Now, as we go forward in our series, we're going to see that there are things to stay away from. And if you're going to pursue the love of God and the love of neighbor, you need to stay away from a number of things. But it's not first what you don't do. It's first what it is you're trying to achieve. All right, we have some additional. You got one more? 
Boy, those are flying off the press. One more? <laughs> uh, you do. We need a quick, we need a faster copier, I think. We're going to pass the hat for a faster copier here soon. All right. We got another one that somebody just gave up. I don't know that I'm thrilled with that. Here, I don't want mine. Give it to somebody else. All right. More to come, I think. So that's what we mean by the title Positive Holiness. You see the subtitle of it, top of page three, in the world but not of the world. We're going to talk about then today what that means. Because in order to pursue holiness, you also have to understand what worldliness is and have a good understanding of what that means, what the world is according to the Bible, and then how to be apart from it. So the title of this is, You Shall Know the Truth and the Truth Shall Make You Odd. And the reason I say it that way is because the word holiness, as we saw last week, means set apart, separate. That's what holiness means. And the Lord says, you are to be holy as I am holy. The Bible calls us many times, quote, God's holy people, God's set apart people. The church, the word church in your New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. That is a compound of two words, kaleo, which means call, and ek, which means out. So the church is comprised of the called out people, called out of the world and to God. So if you're going to be holy, you got to understand this idea then of being set apart, being separate, having been called out of the world and to God. And the truth is then you do that and you're going to be different from other people. You are going to march to the beat of a different drummer if you're going to be holy. And that's why I use this word odd. Not odd uh, of your own foolish making. There is such a thing as oddity that we can just make on our own, right? We can just be odd because we just look weird. You know, and then we can call that holiness because people think, the more people think I'm weird, the more holy I am. So it's not trying to be holy by making people think you're weird. It's simply a byproduct of the fact that you're pursuing God in a world that is not. And when you're pursuing God in a world that is not, by its very nature then, that's going to show itself as different, as set apart, as separate, and in many respects it will look odd to those who look on your life. So what is this world that we're to be in but not of? Page three, solving the world's problems. The Bible has much to say about the dangers of, quote, the world or being worldly. Passages like Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James chapter 1, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James says in chapter 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Famously in 1 John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God 
lives forever. So it is clear, absolutely crystal clear, isn't it, that the world is spoken of in negative terms in the Bible. And it's spoken of as something that we are not to be of, we are not to love, we are not to imbibe in. That's extremely clear. But middle of page three, how do we avoid the world since, in fact, we live in it? And Jesus addressed this issue when, on the night before he was crucified, in John chapter 17, he prays this long prayer in John 17. And in John 17, he prays for himself and he prays for his first followers, the apostles. And then later in that prayer, he prays for those who will believe their message. That would be us. Jesus prayed for you if you're a believer the night before he was crucified. Uh, and he, this is one of the things he prayed, that they are in the world, but they are not of the world. So in that prayer, Jesus says to the Father, Father, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. So the problem with being with the world is not being in it, but being of it. And this will start to help us get to an understanding of what worldliness is according to the Bible. Worldliness is not, as I say here, uh, it does not refer to a place, but rather to a false belief system. And so that's why Jesus uses that preposition of, not of the world. That is, your values, your allegiances, your desires do not come from the world. They are not of the world. They are not sourced in the world. They're not derived from the world. Yes, you're in the world. Yes, you are surrounded by the world that lives as it does with its allegiances and desires and priorities. You live in that. You're surrounded by that. But you have been called out of the world with a different set of desires and priorities and allegiances. So you're in it physically, yes, and surrounded by it and its effects. But who you are and what you adhere to in terms of your values, priorities, allegiances, and desires is not from the world. So it can be defined on page three as follows. The world is the thoughts, the opinions, the maxims, the speculations, the hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations... At any time that current in the world, which at every moment our lives of our lives we inhale, again inevitably exhale. Wow. That's, that's basically saying the world and its values and desires and allegiances are like the air you breathe. You're surrounded by it. Yes, you are in it. And you've got to be careful. We are being called not to then imbibe it. Not to take that in and not to allow that to then shape us. So clearly something is wrong with the world. And therefore we must avoid being contaminated by it. But how do we do that? Jesus gave the answer in that same prayer in John chapter 17. Not only does he say to the Father, Father, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. But then he says this in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So they're in the world, but they do not derive their allegiances, values, desires, priorities from the world. They're not sourced in the world. They don't come from the world. 
But how are they going to maintain a life that is separate from the world in terms of those values, priorities, allegiances, desires? How are they going to do that? They're going to be continually sanctified by the truth and your word is truth. Sanctify means be made holy. So they're going to you. My followers, Jesus says, are going to be continually made holy by being saturated in the truth as they see in the word of God what the word says about your character, God, about the character of the world and how they are diametrically opposed to one another so that they can pursue the one and reject and reject the other. Bottom of page three, sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. And so the solution to the problem of worldliness is holiness. The solution to the problem of worldliness is to be set apart from then the desires, the allegiances, the priorities of of the world. The solution to the problem of worldliness is holiness, and here's why. Because worldliness is idolatry. So I'm going to explain that. But before I do... Um, let me just stop and talk about how I understood worldliness as I was growing up. And this may be the way some of you understood worldliness as well. I grew up Pentecostal. Most of you know that. My dad was the pastor of our church until he died. His brother, my uncle, took over the church when he died when I was 11. I was in the Pentecostal church all the way up through uh, 18. And the Pentecostal church is born out of something called the holiness movement. The holiness movement. The good news with the holiness movement is, as the name suggests, it understood that the Bible takes this idea of being separate and being set apart, being holy, seriously. The bad news is, the way they went about that was to create a list of rules. Things that you avoid, and if you avoid these things, you're holy. This is what a holy life looks like, according to the church I grew up in. So there was no reasoning through this. There was no thinking about what kinds of choices I should make. These were simply foisted upon you. You don't do this, and you'll be holy. Now, if it was not explicitly taught that way, that was the way it was caught. And I've talked to some of you, even after last week's message, and you said, yep, that's what, that's what I got when I was growing up. So that's the way it's been taught a lot of times. And here's why. Because the understanding of worldliness was an insufficient definition biblically. Worldliness was defined this way. Worldliness is whatever the world does. And that's not, that's not the right definition. We got some more here? Anybody need? Thanks, John. John's got two. He's auctioning them off. <laughs> no more. All right. Anybody else want one? Tough. Um, do we have other people who still don't have? All right. We, have, we need some more back here too. Okay. So worldliness was defined practically as what the world does. Here's the problem with that definition. Sometimes the world gets it right. So if you simply say worldliness is what the world does and then you just do the opposite, then you'll wind up with a, with a number of problems. Now, sometimes the world gets it right. Now, why do I say that? Well, because, let's take, for example, fidelity in marriage. 
Even people in the world, there are people in the world who still believe in that. That's, a th- that's something we should be thankful for. So here's the world getting, at times, getting marriage right. That you get married and it's till death do us part and you stay together. And, you know, the, the divorce rate is still around 50%. It's higher in the world than it is in the church, contrary to some of what you've heard over the years. There have been statistics that say otherwise. Uh, it's absolutely the case that it's much higher in the world than it is in the, in the church, thankfully. But nevertheless, there's another 50% who stay together and who give themselves to marriage until death do us part. That's something that we should celebrate. Now, where did they get that idea? Where did the world, unsaved people, who don't follow the principles and precepts of God's word, where did they get that idea? They got it from us. The world lives, hear this, the world lives according to the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. Now, sometimes that's defined as the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview, but I call it stolen. The world gets its good stuff from us. Because remember, now just follow me with this, remember we were here first. Before there was ever the world in opposition to God, there was God's creation in harmony with God. And God laying down who he is and who we are and what he expects from us. So in the opening chapters of the Bible, you get that. One of those things is marriage. God lays out marriage there. So marriage was here before the world started. The world in the sense of the value system that's opposed to God. Before the entrance of sin, there was no such thing as the world, value system, priorities, allegiances that were contrary to God. And so to this day, as those creation values are preserved in God's universe, in God's, in God's earth, preserved through Christians, as that's still preserved, you still see the vestige of, vestiges of that in people in the world. John's got a few more here if anybody needs them. Get your hands up. So you still see that in people who are in the world. It's sort of a hangover from creation. It's the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. They still live according to that. And the truth is they can't live apart from it. Without the principles of a biblical worldview, the world the earth would be uninhabitable. Did you know that? And there's coming a day when those common grace values, those common grace priorities, those common grace allegiances will be removed from the world. That'll happen in something called the rapture of the church. When... When the church is removed, the church, capital C, all of the called out ones are removed from the world, then what do you have left? All you have left is, by definition, the world. All you have left are the values, allegiances, priorities that are opposed to God. You now no longer have that preservative on the earth in the form of the Holy Spirit in God's holy people, the church, And the Bible describes that time as the great tribulation. 
It's a time of trouble such as has not been seen in the history of the world, Jesus says. That's what it will be like. So when I say uninhabitable, I'm not blowing smoke. It would be that bad if the influence of a biblical worldview did not exist on earth. So we make a couple of mistakes. When we see common grace values and people in the world are not as bad, therefore, as they could be, because they're restrained by, happily, common grace, and they get it right, and they do the right things, one mistake we make is we look at it and we go, you know, people in the world are not as bad as the Bible says they are. I mean, God renders a pretty harsh verdict on the world, doesn't he? And the people in the world? I mean, you read the Bible and it's like they never get it right. Even our righteous deeds that I quoted in the first hour are as filthy rags before God. And we look at it and we go, you know, it's just really not that bad. I mean, I just know a lot of swell people at work and in my neighborhood. They're just really neat people. And they don't rob anybody and they don't kill anybody. And they pay their taxes. And they're trying to raise their kids in a, in a good way. The world's not that bad. Well, that's because we are not looking at it through the lens of the stolen capital of the biblical worldview that shows up in common grace. So that's one mistake we make. The other mistake we make is when we see the world uh, living that way, but we don't have a robust understanding of what common grace is, that the world gets it right simply because they're living off of the benefits of a biblical worldview. If we don't see it that way, then we look at the world and we say worldliness is everything they do. So if you're going to avoid worldliness, do the opposite of what they do. And that's the way a lot of Christians have grown up pursuing holiness. Do the opposite of what the world does. Look at what's going on in the culture and then do the opposite. Or have your own version of whatever the world's doing so that it can be a sanitized Christian version. So the world has music. Let me give you an example. The world's got music. Here's what we'll do. We'll have the same stuff, but we'll put Christian words to it. We got our own music. The world has movies. But, you know, they've got, you know, they've got nudity and they've got bad words and all of that. So we'll create Christian movies. We got Christian music. We got Christian movies. We got Christian TV. If the world's got talk shows, we got talk shows. We got our own talk shows. The world's got comedians. We got comedians. We've developed a whole parallel universe next to the world because we have a defective, I'm convinced, because we have a defective view of what worldliness is and what common grace and what common grace is. And we've been pursuing this for, for decades. All right, so stay with me. So this is the kind of thing practically it creates. We go to a celebration. We Christians go to a celebration. 
a celebration of whatever, uh, a, a graduation, a wedding. And we don't quite know how to celebrate. We don't know what to do. Because I've been to celebrations that the world does, and I see what they do. For example, they dance. Well then, whatever we do celebrating, make sure you don't do that. Because that would be what the world does. That would be worldly. That's the way we define it. So we find ourselves in this kind of odd situation where on the one hand, we have the joy of the Lord, we have the joy of his created world and his grace seen in his world through even common grace, but we don't know what to do with it. If the world does it, we can't do it. And that is a false definition of holiness, a false definition of worldliness that does not take into account common grace and the fact that the world, therefore, sometimes gets it right. So stay with me some more. Jesus says we're in the world but not of the world. There are four relationships that you could have, then, to the world. Four. Let me give them to you. You can be uh, not in the world and not of the world. Now, that's not what Jesus says. He says be in the world and not of the world. But you could try to have a relationship that says, I'm not in and not of. What would that mean? Not of means, as I've said, the source of your values, allegiances, priorities, desires is different than the world. comes from the Lord. But you're also not in the world. That means you have physically separated yourself from the people who do live according to those, those values. Not in and not of. Now, who would the modern-day people who do that, who would that be? That would be Amish people. That would be a monastic lifestyle. That would be, in practice, the way I grew up in my Pentecostal church. Not of we physically separated ourselves. So you can try that, not in but not of, but that won't, that's not what Jesus said. You can be in and you can be... You can be in and you can be of the world, in the world and of the world. Who's that? Well, that's your average pagan, right? That's your average unbeliever. That's like most everybody. They're in it and they're of it. Or you can be, here's a third one. You can be not in and not of. You can be both in and of. You can be not in and still be of. What's that? That means you physically separate yourself. You create your own Christian ghetto. That is, you start all your own stuff. You have all your own parallel stuff. Whatever you can do, we can do better. We want to do the stuff you're doing, but we know we can't because you do it. Therefore, we'll start our own versions of it. So we've got, as I said earlier, the Christian version of everything. We start our own parallel stuff. We're not in. Here's the problem. Very often we're still of. We called it Christian, but it still demonstrates the same kind of values and priorities and allegiances and desires. But we called it Christian. 
So you guys see how muddled this whole thing gets? The Bible takes this idea of worldliness really seriously. It takes the idea of separation from the world very seriously. But if you don't have a proper definition of what worldliness is, what holiness is, and what common grace is, you will have that kind of... Now, the proper approach is the fourth one, and it's what Jesus said. You're in it, but you're not of it. You don't create your own Christian ghetto. And you analyze now the culture to see what vestiges of common grace are present in the culture that we can actually participate in because we actually invented them. They stole that from us. The world stole joy in God's creation from us. Did you know that? Exulting in and praising in God's creation, they stole from us. And yet we've allowed them to do it and we go, we can't because you are. So let me define worldliness for you in a line. And then we'll go on to page four. Worldliness is this. Fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. That's what worldliness is. If you want a full definition now, taking everything the Bible says about it, the definition I gave you on page three, you know, the air we breathe, but here's just a working definition that I think pulls it all together. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. You notice what that definition does. It does not assume that all of the values expressed in culture are fallen. Worldliness is fallen values. So worldliness is not everything that's expressed in the culture. Because sometimes the world gets it right. What's expressed in the culture is sometimes what it should be expressing. And we ought to celebrate that. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. So fallen values like frivolity, sensuality, materialism, those are all values that then get expressed in particular ways at a particular time that we call culture. That means that you could never make a list, if that's what really worldliness is, you could never make a list of rules that lasts, is the same way all the time. You could never say, you know, you should not wear long trench coats with, you know, eye, dark eyeliner, and I'm just making stuff up. I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up with what goth looks like. So you make a list of a goth wardrobe and you say you should never wear that. Now, at a given time in culture, it may well be that a particular way of dressing is expressing fallen values in that particular culture. And therefore, as you analyze it, you say, I'm not going to do that. But if your church or your family or your school were to lay down a rule, no trench coats, then a generation later or a generation after that, when everybody's forgotten what goth is, 
you still got a rule that says don't wear trench coats. When in fact, there's nothing wrong with a trench coat. It's simply the fallen values that were represented at a particular time. Here's what that means. If that's what worldliness is, fallen values expressed in culture, and the world gets it right sometimes, therefore you can't just reject it because the world is doing it. You've got to analyze what the world is doing and why. Here's what it means. It means that we have to engage in exegeting the culture. Exegeting the culture. All right, analyzing the culture. But what it is, is you're looking at what the culture is doing and you're analyzing what it's doing to determine, to discern whether or not what it's doing and the way it's doing it is expressing fallen values or common grace values. The mere fact that it's doing doing whatever it's doing doesn't answer the question because sometimes they get it right. It may be common grace. But it may well be fallen values that are being expressed in what the world is doing. So that being the case, determining what is worldly is not then a simple matter of the world does it, we won't. It's certainly not a simple matter of here's the list and this list will last until Jesus comes back. It's at your place and your time on God's earth, you and I applying the principles and precepts of the word to what the world is doing and we are analyzing it, we are exegeting it to determine if what it's doing is common grace or what it's doing is fallen values. So I want you to think about this. We'll get to this in a lesson uh, in more detail later, but think about it for now. So can stuff you wear today, July 9th, 2017, can things you wear express worldliness? If worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture, then can things you wear express worldliness? So all of a sudden, it's not so simple as to say, as many of us did when we were teenagers, Maybe you're a teenager in here. We've got a handful of them that the poor souls are left over and didn't go to Mexico and so didn't even have your class today. They dragged you in here. I apologize. A teenager, a young adult, you know, but we've done this or we are now hearing it from our kids. Look, it's just, it's just material. It's just an article of clothing. See, if you put it in those terms, it separates what you're doing from what it represents. It separates what you're doing from the values that are being communicated in it. And what you do and how you do it, hear this, always communicates values. It always does. So you must always be thinking about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. It's not a list of rules that I make. It's not a list of rules that somebody else makes you got to be doing that. This is what I used to tell the teenagers when I taught teenagers. I used to say, and I would go through this stuff with them, and I would say, we don't all have to come to the same conclusions, but we do all have to ask the same questions. And the problem that many of us have is that we don't even ask the questions with regard to worldliness 
because we say honestly silly things like it's just fabric. It doesn't matter. Or it's just a piece of metal or it's just that's all true. It's just material. But the material is not the point. It's the values that are being expressed in the world by that at a given time. So a Christian exegetes the culture to see what things are happening in the culture at the time in which we live that are expressing common grace values versus fallen values expressed in the culture, worldliness. That's what God then is calling us to do, a more robust view of what's happening around us. It would be much simpler if you could just go to the pastor and say, can I do this? And I just go, yeah or no. In fact, I kind of like that. You all just have to come to me and I give you a stamp and I say you can do it or you can't do it. And actually, I wouldn't like that because it doesn't help you to grow at all. It doesn't help you to learn to discern at all. Discerning means to distinguish things that are different. That's a literal definition of discerning. Distinguish things that are different. And if you're going to live a holy life, you've got to be able to distinguish things that are different. You've got to be able to see the difference between godly values and worldly values expressed in culture. So page four says worldliness is idolatry. So we'll get this started, giving you some history as to how we got here. Remember, I said we were the ones who started all this. They're living off the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. Why do I say this? Page four. How did the good world that God created become corrupted? The Bible presents it in two phases, creation and fall. In the beginning, there was truth. And God made humanity to receive God's revelation. So we were made with the ability to receive God's truth from his, from, from, from his mouth. And we didn't have to go to school to learn how to do that. We didn't have to go to language school. The first man and the first woman were made by God to hear his voice and understand it and to be in tune with it. We were made to receive God's revelation, making known to us his truth. We were further made to interpret God's revelation. His revelation, not just in his words, but his revelation about his character in creation itself. You know, the Bible teaches that. That revelation, that is, that word revelation means the making known of God's character. So God is making known who he is through his word, but also through his world, through his creation. And we were made to interpret God's creation, his revelation of himself in that. We were made to look at his world and to work it and subdue it and preserve it. All the stuff that God told Adam to do in Genesis chapter 2 interpreting and and mimicking God, modeling God in being creative in the world that he gave us to care for. And then thirdly, we were made to be worshipers. We receive God's revelation, we interpret God's revelation, and we were made to be worshipers. Everything that a human being does is a matter of worship. Every last thing And every breath you take is a matter of worship. The question is not, does one person worship and another person doesn't? The question is, who or what do they worship? 
Everybody worships every moment of every day. We were made to do that. Okay, that would all be good, except in the beginning was the tr- there was truth, but then the fall. If indeed man was made for God, then any deviation from God's design is a matter of idolatry in that it has placed someone or something as primary other than God. The fall, and I have that in quotes there because sometimes fall sounds like an accident. It wasn't an accident. They didn't just trip. They intentionally disobeyed God. But the fall of Genesis 3 involved a radical reordering of the relationship of man to God and of man to man. So I'm just reminding you of the way it was originally made to be, the way a biblical worldview started. It started the way the world, the way the, the world, the universe started. But then it was corrupted. And there was this vertical effect of sin. So you read, see there from Genesis 3, after the man and woman disobeyed God, they find themselves hiding from God. So now you don't have people doing what they were made to do. They're not receiving truth from God. They're not interpreting God's world on his behalf. They're not worshiping God as God every moment of every day. Now things have radically changed so that they're hiding from God. And the Bible will tell us later that they're at war with God. People come into the world with, using good King James language, enmity against God. So you can see now how this whole thing of being holy... And worldly, this is all going to get messed up. In the beginning at creation, before the fall, it was all one. We were, we, we were in God's world and there was nothing corrupt about it. And so we were of the world in that sense, too. Because there was nothing to avoid in the world. But now with sin there is. And the first effect of sin is that we've separated ourselves from God. From this day forward, it's natural for man to hide from God. So here's a practical effect of that, and then I'll have to stop. But a practical effect of that is this. People hide from God, and it shows up in stuff like this. People don't want to talk about God. What should be more natural for people made in the image of God than to talk about God. But when you're with people at work, how many of them want to talk with you about God? What do they say? There are two things I don't talk about. Religion and politics. This religion thing is a personal matter. Think about had there never been the entrance of sin into God's world. Everybody would be talking about God and exulting in God all the time. There will be a day in the future when that will all happen. But we live in a day now when people are hiding from God. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to talk about that. So that's one of the effects. And then the other effect is on our relationships with each other. Bottom of page four, from this day forward, after Adam and Eve pointed the finger at each other, blame shifting to others, including God, became quite natural for us to do. All right, we'll pick it up there next week. Bring your notes back with you if you remember, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we could have this time to think about these important matters. These important matters of holiness, being your called out, holy people. And yet, we are these called out people over against 
a culture that has two parts to it. A culture that does the right things because they live according to the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. And then a culture that expresses fallen values in the way it does and what it does. So, Lord, we now have to then be wise and discerning in exegeting and analyzing the difference, in discerning the difference. And we need your aid in doing that. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your word by which we are sanctified, by which we are set apart, that tells us then what you are like, what you value, what your priorities are, and therefore what ours ought to be so that we then can express those in what we do and what we choose and what we reject. Lord, because we are fallen, because we are limited, we get it wrong. And it's sometimes difficult to do. It's the air we breathe. We're surrounded with this, these fallen values of the world. So, Lord, we need, yes, your word desperately, and we need your Holy Spirit as well to help us to see the significance of what you teach there and make application of it to our lives. Help us to begin to do that this week. Help us in this series to learn better how to do that so that we can bring glory to you in the choices we make. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.